namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhassa buddhandamang sanghang namasahani So last night I tried to take a bunch of notes and give you a structured, intelligent, well-reasoned Dhamma talk. And tonight I'm doing the opposite. Completely unprepared. We'll see how that goes. Are you hearing me okay? Okay. Aim it over here towards the... So, first, ooh, I'm going to take a look at the, uh, the question box. Things have been building up in here. Wow. Okay. I might have to take a closer look at uh, some of these, but sometimes just... Some of these might be, you never know, we'll just take a quick look. Looking for the perfect question so far. <laughs> okay, here's a great one. So, in the chanting book, uh, in the homage to the Buddha, there's a passage where we chant, talking about the Dhamma being. Beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, and beautiful in the end. Why is the Dhamma beautiful? What's beautiful about the Dhamma? And this might be worth reflecting on. So, I'm not neglecting these other questions, but we're going to use this, that one as a, a starting point. They're all good questions. But some of them I have to think about a little bit. So the Dhamma and its beauty. Well, the uh, I think there's a, um, a classic or a canonical notion of what beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end means. But I can't remember what that is. But I have a sense it's something like this. Um, When uh, um, 
What was Venerable Sariputta's name before he became Venerable Sariputta? It was Tisa or something like this. He was a wanderer. And uh, uh, he was an ascetic before he met the Buddha. And um, he was a good friend of the uh, uh, Mahamogalana before he became an ascetic. They were friends. So they, uh, they, made, they were young men. They decided to go out looking for some kind of spiritual awakening. And they were following uh, a teacher, but, they, but both of them felt that this teacher didn't really know the answer. But it was, a, it was better than no teacher at all. But they made a deal with each other that <clears throat> whoever discovered the, the best, the, the right teacher, the one that had the, the answer, uh, would tell the other one straight away. As soon as one of them discovered it, they, they would share it with the other. So this was their deal. And um, Venerable Sariputta, before he became Venerable Sariputta, saw one of the Buddha's new disciples, because the Buddha had just started teaching. He saw him going through town on his alms route, and there was something about his comportment, his, his self-possessedness, his, his nobility of, of stride, that attracted Venerable soon-to-be Sariputta's attention. And so he said, friend, what is your, you know, he waited, he waited for the right time. He let him go through his alms round, let him finish his meal. And when the time was right, he approached this venerable and asked him, um, who is your teacher? And what is it that he teach, teaches? And the answer was something along the lines of, um, the venerable Sakyan sage, the Venerable Gotama, and my teacher teaches everything that has a cause. Uh, everything that arises has a cause. Very simple. But that was just enough for Sariputta's mind to, to understand what it meant. So his mind penetrated this, this the radical implications of that. Everything that arises, arises due to causes. Um, it sounds so, it can sound so sort of mm, philosophical, not very obvious what, what that means. But when you, when someone hears the Dhamma and it makes sense to them, it hooks their heart. That's the beautiful in the beginning. So, um, something a little more personal, I own, I'll just tell you a little bit briefly my own story. Um, I was raised Catholic and uh, I left the Catholic Church when I was... 13, don't tell anybody here. <laughs> here. Um, and I, but I, when I left, the, the uh, education that I had received it embedded in my, my heart is these questions about uh, what's a human life for? Why are we here? What should we do? What should a person do? And the church, of course, answers those questions always couched in terms of God and Jesus' teaching. But I didn't find those answers very satisfactory. Uh, they, they didn't give me a guidance on how to, how to penetrate the question myself. And they didn't seem to address my situation. But I felt the questions were important. Why are we here? What should we do? 
how should life be lived? Should we just pursue our material interests and try to get as much stuff as we can? Should we uh, go around selflessly serving others and putting our own happiness aside, even if it means that we have to be miserable? Should we just kill ourselves now and get it over with? I mean, each one of these answers is potentially viable, depending on one's perspective, and it's hard to really prove that one's the correct one. Right? Uh, uh, obviously, there's uh, views and opinions about this. And that was always my question, is how can we know what's, what's really true, what's really right? And it wasn't until my 30s that I encountered uh, Theravada Buddhism. And in that encounter, I was uh, in a, uh, mentally and emotionally in a very kind of miserable and despairing place. I felt that life was fundamentally without meaning and without purpose and without direction and without uh, any, any value other than what we uh, imagined to be there. So I was leaning towards why not, why not kill yourself now and get it over with, that, that particular answer. And this misery was driven by my, my experience of seeing over and over again that whenever I would pursue something that I thought would make me happy, like a classic one was a promotion at work. So I'm doing really well at work, my supervisor likes me, my coworkers like me, I'm having success. And so I pursue a promotion. I know there's this job opening up and I, someone's retiring or something and I kind of lobby to get that position. And uh, sure enough, after enough effort and enough angling, um, I find myself getting a promotion, get a bigger office, more responsibility, more status, more money, more stock options. Everything's going great. And then the next day, I'm back at the office, going to meetings, having new things to look after. And I, I recognize that, uh, well, it's just more of the same. All the same stuff that I was dealing with before. This doesn't actually make me happy, it just makes me busy. And, and so once I'd seen that cycle a couple of times, uh, I could see that there was, there was no worldly good I didn't put it in those terms, but there was nothing that the world had to offer in terms of success at work. No promotion, no raise, no stock option. It was going to make me happy. <coughs> happiness wasn't in those things. And I could see that happiness wasn't in uh, possessions or in relationships. Not that relationships are bad, but that the happiness of the people in the relationship is more a characteristic of the people rather than the relationship itself. So if you're a miserable person and you get yourself into a relationship, then now there's two people who are miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and um, no accomplishment, no fulfillment of ambition could promise happiness because of, of what it's made of. It's always It always involves this this unhappy mind that's trying to find happiness outside. And when I realized that there was no happiness possible in the things of the world, uh, I went on the search to see if there was some other answer. And that's I spent some time with that, looking at psychology and looking at 
um, other religions. I looked again at Christianity, and none of it struck me as promising. It all seemed more or less uh, like a band-aid. Rather than addressing the actual underlying cause of unhappiness, they were always either putting happiness off till after death. Now, when you're, I can, a lot of the religions were postulating that true happiness would come after death, and your job was simply to live a good life so that after death you'd, you'd meet up with all your family and friends in heaven and finally be happy. And uh, psychology mostly focuses on trying to, to resolve uh, true human misery. And I wasn't truly miserable. I just wasn't particularly happy. So it's looking at psychology is more or less trying to solve uh, real, real deep uh, dysfunction of the human mind. The way Freud put it was uh, his therapy was aimed at taking the truly miserable human being and elevating them to the ordinary plane of human misery. <laughs> so they could be about the same degree of unhappiness as everybody else, which is tolerable. Tolerable unhappiness. Uh, so I was struggling with this because it seemed like everybody in my life was pretty happy. My, my, my friends seemed pretty happy. My co-workers all seemed like they were pretty happy. It seemed like their, their lives were fulfilling them and they were finding satisfaction in it. And there was something kind of uniquely wrong with me because I kept having all this worldly success. You know, I was married to a wonderful woman. I lived in a beautiful house. I had a great job. I was working for a, uh, a good company, having success. I was healthy. And, you know, I was thinking how meaningless and pointless it all is because the whole project is shadowed by death. Right? You can't take it with you. Everything that you accomplish ends up being dust. So I had this intimation of, of the futility of it all in the end. And that uh, along the way, I felt like I'm kind of going along with the program so as not to make other people, not to drag other people into my misery. But I really couldn't enter into this idea that, that life is, is worth celebrating. So I was not fun at parties at all. <laughs> <laughs> So one day I was in Japan, and I was uh, on a business trip, and uh, the guys at the office had taken me out for sake and sushi, which is what they would do every time I came to Japan, Tokyo. And I went through the motions of uh, socializing with my colleagues, and when I got back to the hotel I had a, a, a very intense uh, wave of this feeling of existential ennui, uh, a kind of angst of a misery of the futility and the pointlessness, the emptiness of the circumstances of this moment. Just why am I? Why am I here? What am I doing this for? But I didn't want to dig delve into it because I could see there was no there was no solution in looking at this misery itself. So I was looking for a distraction, and I uh, opened the drawer of the, the bedside stand 
and inside there was a book which I remember as the sayings of the Buddha in Japanese and English. And I'm pretty sure it was some kind of a translation of the Dhammapada. But I, I can't say for sure from here in memory. But what struck me was I opened the book and I started reading, just looking for something to feed my mind so it wouldn't dwell on this existential misery. And very soon my eye landed on the first noble truth in this translation. And the way it was presented was something like this. Human life as we experience it is characterized by unsatisfactoriness. This is the first noble truth. And when I read that, I felt like for the first time in a long time, somebody really understood me. It really got like what my situation was. It's just not satisfactory. There's no satisfaction really to be found in it. And this is true. And so it's like being acknowledged by somebody about the depth of my own suffering. And it really just went right to my heart. I was really struck by that. That's the beautiful in the beginning. So in that moment, I knew that I discovered something that was worth following up, something that had a glimmer of hope. Because the Buddha was stating it front and center, this really is the case. Human life is characterized by unsatisfactoriness. And this is the first noble truth. And what I was really struck by the fact that it's the first noble truth it's not the first unfortunate truth. <laughs> well, the first thing that we just have to put up with. There's something noble about that truth. And, uh, and of course, the second noble truth is very, very, second and third noble truth are very promising. Right? Second noble truth being that this suffering or this unsatisfactoriness has a cause. And that cause is grasping. Now, maybe I don't know exactly what grasping means at that moment, but I, I could see, okay, well, maybe there's, you know, if there's a causal basis for this unsatisfactoriness, well, maybe something can be done about it. And, of course, that's what the third noble truth is saying, that when the cause is removed, the suffering is removed. So that which has a cause, that which arises due to causes, will vanish when those causes vanish. So this third noble truth is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, when that cause is abandoned. And so what, what struck me in the third noble truth is the hint that there's something volitional in there. That, that, and the second and third noble truth are both kind of hinting at this point that our volition is somehow involved in our suffering. Um, the only way that you can abandon something is if you were already carrying it around. Right? So if you're carrying around something, you're kind of doing it on purpose. You're, you've chosen to take up a, some burden, you're carrying it around, and if you, if you go, oh, look, why am I carrying this around? And you just set it down and you turn your back and you abandon it, that also is a volitional act. Right? So there's volition in both sides of this, and being entangled with suffering is, involves mental volition. 
and coming to see that that this is problematic and choosing to, to do otherwise involves volition as well. And what the Buddha is saying is when you when you choose that, then the causes of this unsatisfactoriness having been abandoned is attended by the the ending of that unsatisfactoriness. It's pretty cool. It's very promising. So this is the for me this is the the beautiful in the beginning and that's that's the truth about the dhamma is that everybody who encounters it and recognizes it sees it as something valuable and worth following up gets a little taste of that beauty that beautiful in the beginning aspect of the dhamma but at first it's kind of mysterious you don't really know what you're getting yourself into into maybe it's some some new age head shaving robe wearing cult <laughs> for heaven's sake <laughs> certainly looks like that <laughs> um, but of course it's not new age right it's very it's ancient right? this this uh, teaching goes back to the buddha 2600 years 2600 years ago and so far as i know there's nothing there's nothing even remotely like it at, uh, is of a similar age. The beautiful in the middle comes when you start practicing. So first we hear about the Dhamma. And it sounds interesting, it sounds intriguing, maybe we read some more, maybe we listen to some Dhamma talks. And the theme within the Dhamma is, the Dhamma is not something that you believe, it's something that you do. Right? The teaching of the Buddha is practice, it's development. Bhavana, it uh, requires effort, it requires uh, intention, it requires volition. So we come back to that, that principle again. Uh, we are unwittingly, volitionally involved in suffering. And it takes uh, conscious, intelligent, directed volition to disentangle ourselves from that suffering. And so sooner or later, someone who's really been touched by this teaching will make an attempt to actually practice, to do it for themselves. They'll take on the precepts, um, take them formally or informally, but actually consciously start practicing with these things, trying to abandon these causes of suffering. Those that are involved with um, taking life, taking what's not offered, taking liberties with the truth, liberties with sexuality, uh, and um, uh, taking intoxicants. So when you take on the precepts, you're, you're directing your volition in a particular way advised by the Buddha. And when you do that, to the extent that you do it, you'll see for yourself that it's, the results are good ones. Like Doing all those things doesn't lead to unhappiness. It might not make you leaping for joy, but for sure, none of those things will cause you misery. Uh, any misery that you're experiencing is coming from something other than refraining from doing those things. And maybe you'll be inspired to actually uh, go a little further and take up uh, meditation practice. Maybe you'll do a guided meditation and you'll get a sense of what's here. That, that possibility of looking inside and seeing the causes. And at a certain point, you'll be you'll see. Oh, there is a lot. There's a lot worth provo uh, pursuing here, and you start taking it on more and more whole, wholeheartedly. 
because you're seeing the benefits. You, you practice and you see that it not only does it not uh, make things worse, it makes things better. Right? Uh, when you conduct yourself in a wholesome way, if you spend a whole day um, not taking life, not taking anything that's not offered, um, only using your speech skillfully, uh, practicing these precepts, uh, and then you reflect on what just happened. That that day will will be in your mind as a good a good day. Right? You'll feel good about that. Nothing there to, to be to be ashamed of. And so your heart's lightened just a little bit by that reflection. So you'll start to see comma, cause and effect, how one thing leads to another, how the mind is conditioned by by what it experiences and what it attends to. And so you start pursuing it further and further, you start getting more and more benefit, and this is the, the good in the middle, beautiful in the middle. The Dhamma is giving you these beautiful results, and you're not even enlightened yet, right? you, but you're just practicing, you're just taking on the, the training, take, uh, doing it volitionally, and seeing for yourself that uh, good causes bring about good results. Wholesome commas create wholesome mind states. Wholesome mind states are pleasant. Uh, they're a kind of happiness. And I could see for myself, as I practiced in this way, in this middle kind of way, and I still see it, that the practices of the Buddha are productive of the Buddha's happiness. The happiness that he's pointing to is more or less uh, the absence of unhappiness, right? So it's, it's not the kind of happiness of Christmas morning for a child where there's this anticipation of getting everything that you want. It's more the happiness of everything is okay. Everything is acceptable. Uh, I don't need this to change. I'm not mis there's no sense of misery or burden or uh, oppression by one's life. So the happiness of the Buddha is it will changes your definition of what happiness means, what happiness is. And so this is also part of the education of the Dhamma, is seeing what is what what happiness actually is, uh, how we're defining it in our minds, uh, shifts and matures over time as we as we practice. And we start to see there's a, a kind of a worldly sense of happiness, of um, feeling good, feeling healthy in your body, um, getting what you want at work, getting what you want at home, having the kind of food that you like, um, not having interruptions in your routine, uh, something good on television. Right? It's like the kind of worldly happiness. It's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not to be... Uh, disliked. But of course it doesn't have any, it, there's no legs to it, it doesn't have any durability, right? As soon as they hire a new producer for that television show you like and he starts making terrible episodes and then now you're, you, you, you can't look forward to that anymore. Or maybe your digestion changes and the pizza that you used to enjoy so much, you can no longer enjoy pizza without, without medical help. 
um, maybe that relationship of we were so, which was so wonderful, maybe that person changes or leaves, or um, or you change or you leave. So things you you see that you're dependent on external conditions for this kind of worldly happiness. There's nothing wrong with worldly happiness, but it is dependent. It's conditioned, and it and if conditions change, then your happiness is very fragile. And if you're like me and you're constantly looking towards, like, well, where does this all end? It all ends in death. Then you can't even enjoy the worldly happiness that's there, right? So, you, so I don't recommend that, by the way. Don't. <laughs> like, it's actually worthwhile to enjoy your life. So whatever worldly happiness that your life is offering you, um, appreciate it, right? Enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with these things. But also recognize, as you're enjoying them, the ephemeral, conditioned, um, transient nature of these happinesses, of these enjoyments. And when they fade away, as they inevitably will do, then this, this reflection will, will buffer the impact of those changes. And then this stands in contrast to, alongside, the contrast to um, the happiness that the Buddha is pointing to, this happiness of the ending of suffering the ending of unsatisfactoriness. So the Buddha makes us into, uh, he makes us into like, like sleuths or investigators. We have to investigate, what, he, what does he mean by this? You know, what, is, what is happiness, really? So if there's this worldly happiness, which is dependent on conditions, then what's, what else is there? You know, like he's talking about a happiness that doesn't depend on conditions. He calls it the unconditioned. Uh, a happiness that doesn't end in death. He calls it the deathless. A happiness that doesn't get old. He calls it the unaging. What's he talking about? That's what we're here to find out. Right? So we get, we get experiences of this when we see <coughs> that, that we can bring our mind to a state in meditation or in other forms of practice a very accessible one is uh, the practice of reflection. So if you take some meditation time, some quiet time, and simply reflect on uh, one of the wholesome themes that the Buddha recommends. So reflect on the Buddha, reflect on the Dhamma, reflect on the Sangha, reflect on the Devas, if that works for you, and reflect on your own virtue, your own wholesomeness. So, for example, the fact that you took a big chunk of time and effort and energy and money to come on this retreat is a very, very wholesome act. And it's going to serve you in good stead for, uh, for your, really your whole life. You can always look back at this time that you put in this effort to try to more deeply comprehend what the Buddha is teaching. Try to see the arising and passing away. Uh, Try to understand your own mind and how it works, how it produces the causes and conditions of happiness and unhappiness. That, that effort, very meritorious. And when you reflect on that, you'll feel a sense of very kind of uh, a sense of uplift, a sense of, of the goodness of it, the wholesomeness of it, that doesn't burden the heart. 
right? This uh, anything that's anything that, we, that counts on external conditions like um, eating a lot of food, the pleasure of, of a big Thanksgiving dinner, for example, it burdens the body and it burdens the heart. It might be enjoyable while you're doing it; it's gratifying. Um, but then looking back on that, it's hard to feel really good about it. <laughs> you don't feel proud that you ate so much turkey. <clears throat> but um, looking back on any wholesome act, an act of generosity, an act of kindness, an act of self-restraint, uh, an act of, of development, um, these acts make the mind feel good upon reflection. So you can use reflection to, sh to get a taste of what the Buddha is talking about. Um, merely reflecting, remembering this goodness is enough to uplift the heart. So it doesn't require um, particular conditions to come together. That, you know, the television shows on, and the phone's not ringing, and you get to really sort of settle in and enjoy your thing. Um, every time you bring it to mind, this wholesome goodness of your, your own past, when you're doing this reflection on wholesomeness, every time you bring it to mind, um, it's going to generate that same feeling of uplift. So it's a very um, portable kind of happiness, accessible. And this is a taste of the Buddha's, the Buddha's happiness. This is the, the, the flavor of it. His happiness is not, uh, doesn't require external conditions to all converge in just a special way. This is like a continuation of the goodness of the middle, but we're getting a hint of the, of the, of the, uh, the beautiful, beautiful in the middle, and the beautiful at the end, of course, is when... Um, Sooner or later, you're on retreat, and you're just doing the thing that you usually do on retreat. You're watching your breath, or you're watching your feet moving, or you're brushing your teeth and trying to be mindful. Maybe you're thinking a little bit about the Dhamma talk that you heard, or, um, but you're, you're, you've conditioned your mind. You've spent some time and some effort trying to really develop continuous mindfulness, so you're you're aware that things are arising and passing away, even now in this present moment. So whether you're practicing formally or you're practicing informally uh, on this hypothetical retreat, maybe it'll be this retreat. You don't really know. Um, something, something will catch your attention, and you'll notice it's conditioned causal nature. And in some way, you'll, you'll see, oh, that's what they're talking about. That's what the Buddha is talking about. It's, this is how it is. Like, this is why things are the way they are. Um, I don't want to put like, words in your mind, so to speak. I don't want to give away the plot. Uh, but along the way, we taste what the Dhamma tastes like when we conduct ourselves in a wholesome way when we develop the mind, when we see the causes of suffering, uh, and we, we experience the wholesomeness of that, the goodness of that. Whenever we let go of some of our clinging and we experience the lightness that comes from that, um, we're tasting what it tastes like, the freedom of the Buddha, uh, what he's pointing to. That, uh, and it, it has to do with causality. So there's a great phrase. Uh, I, I think we've only got the uh, 
the first volume of the chanting book. But in the second volume, there's the uh, the three cardinal suttas, and there's this great phrase where the um, uh, you, you get a little sense of what it what the, what's going on here. Um, the Buddha's in the, in the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta. The Buddha's teaching the five ascetics, um, the basis of the of the Dhamma. So he he starts off by talking about these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth. Sensual indulgence, which is low, coarse, vulgar, vulgar, and ignoble, and unprofitable. And self-torture, which is painful, ignoble, and unprofitable. So by avoiding these two extremes, the Tathagata has realized the middle way, which produces knowledge, produces vision, produces calm, and produces uh, enlightenment leads to Nibbana. And what is this middle way? It's this Eightfold Noble Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right, right mindfulness, right concentration. So the Eightfold Noble Path, we've all heard about it. And obviously the, the five ascetics had heard about it as well. And then he reflects about the Four Noble Truths. This is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the disliked is dukkha. Separation from the liked is dukkha. Not to get what you want is dukkha. In brief, the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. This is the noble truth of the cause of dukkha. The second noble truth. Uh, that craving that leads to rebirth, always seeking fresh delight, now here, now there, namely craving for sensual pleasure, craving for existence, and craving for annihilation. This is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the complete abandoning of that craving, complete separation from it complete freedom from that craving. And this is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of dukkha, only this noble eightfold path. So again, right view, right intention, all the way through, right concentration. So having, having <coughs> described just that much, and then declaring that until I fully understood these four noble truths, and I understood that each noble truth, not only in its content, but in the requirement that's implied by it. So the noble truth of dukkha uh, has to be understood. And Buddha did indeed understand this noble truth of dukkha. The second noble truth of uh, craving being the cause of dukkha, that has to be abandoned. The craving has to be abandoned noble truth of cessation that has to be realized. One has to experience it directly. And then the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of dukkha that has to be developed. So when the Buddha had done those things, he understood the noble truths, fulfilled the implicit requirement of each one of those noble truths, um, then he was able to declare his complete supreme enlightenment to the world. 
And at the end of that uh, exposition, it said, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma appeared to the venerable Kandanya, and he knew everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. And then the Buddhas, the Dhamma, uh, sorry, the, the Devas all exclaim about this, the, the, the initiation of the turning of the wheel, the Dhamma. But after that, after the, the, the Devas get over their, their excitement, the Buddha makes this utterance. He, he notices the change in Kondanya's, uh, maybe, maybe the look on his face. He says, ah, truly Kondanya has understood. Kondanya has understood. Thus it was that the Venerable Kundanya got the name Anya Kundanya, Kundanya who understands. So that's a, a, the first, the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta in brief. But what's, what's really key in there is what it is that Kundanya understood, because he understands the Dhamma as being beautiful in the end. So it's beautiful in the beginning, it's beautiful in the middle, and it's beautiful at the end. The beauty at the end is seeing for yourself that everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. And not in an intellectual way, not in a discursive way, but in a, uh, a direct observation kind of way. Uh, a way that, that brooks no challenge, that has no doubt in it. When you see it deeply and directly for yourself, um, you don't, it's not that you agree that everything that arises passes away. Instead, you know directly that everything that has a cause arises and passes away. And that everything includes everything. Not just external things. Not just what's happening right now. Not just what happened a few minutes ago. Uh, not just other people. Everything. And there's something really freeing about that, because it, it releases the heart from a, a, a groundless conviction that there's something here that can be held onto. And so there's a kind of abandoning that takes place when that's seen deeply, and a, a kind of a giving up. And at first it can seem a little frightening to have to give up the thing that you were counting on to make you happy. It's like being confronted by one of your older siblings when you're young and them hinting that maybe Santa Claus isn't real. Right? Maybe you don't want to give up the, the idea of Santa Claus. Right? So you might stick your fingers in your ears and not want to listen. But when we, when we lose uh, a misperception about the way things are, uh, when we lose, an, when we become freed from an illusion about uh, about life, reality, existence, uh, a misapprehension, a mistaken notion, then not only do we are we uh, do we have the, the kind of the goodies of that illusion taken from us, this fantasy of Santa Claus gets taken from us, and so we can never really enjoy the, the pleasure of imagining that Santa Claus is going to bring us all the things that we want. 
But along with that, we are unburdened by all the suffering that goes along with that misapprehension. Like when Santa Claus doesn't give us what we want, and we, we feel like maybe we've been a bad person, Santa Claus is punishing us. Um, when we see the truth that, that Santa Claus never existed in the first place, it changes our everything in a, in a certain way. But it doesn't necessarily change it for the worse. Right? We, we now stand, when, we've been, when we clearly see how this Santa Claus thing works, how this Christmas gift thing works, uh, we stand to gain a lot. Right? We can gain a new appreciation for our parents. We can gain a new appreciation for, for what generosity means. And we lose our magical thinking about where, how things work. And we're, we're, we're standing in a position of being able to uh, be effective in the world for our own benefit and for the benefit of others in a way that's uh, relieved of this illusion. And so that's what Venerable Kondanya saw in this really deep way the ending of this illusion that he had before, the illusion that um, things just are, that they, they exist independent of causes and conditions. And that, that illusion is something that humanity suffers from greatly. He saw very deeply that everything arises due to causes and conditions and vanishes consequently. And the radical implication of that and the new, the new vista of possibilities that opens up when that's deeply accepted. Uh, and so that's the beautiful in the end. So, that, so the Dhamma shows us the truth, and what Kundanya saw was just the beginning of his, of his awakening. In subsequent uh, Cardinal Sutta, the uh, Nata Lakana Sutta, the Sutta, uh, the discourse on the characteristic of not self, Venerable Kandanya gains full enlightenment. So, the story gets happy and it gets even happier. Right? Full enlightenment from Kandanya and for for the other five ascetics that were uh, the Buddha's initial students. And so this this is the the way the Dhamma leads. It leads towards this. It's actually marvelous and wonderful, and the Buddha called it the, the, the greatest, the most marvelous thing, the highest happiness, uh, the wonderful. He, 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 ran, he was constantly praising uh, the experience of Nibbana. And there's a whole collection in, this, in the, uh, uh, the Pali Canon called the Teragata, uh, Teragata, Teragata. The, the, the exclamations of the elders. The, so when someone would get enlightened, sometimes they, they have a poem sort of burst out of them about it. And this, some of this stuff got recorded in this, in this collection. It's universal praise. Right? This is the best thing that happens to a human being, is to have the illusion fall away and to see what the world looks like from the, diso from the disillusioned place. But the word disillusion sounds like a bummer. Mm -hmm. The word extinction sounds like annihilation. It sounds kind of awful from the perspective of our unenlightened minds. And so this is, you could say, part of where faith comes into play. Right? 
we have to admit that we don't really quite understand how this could be a good thing. But rather than putting our fingers in our ears and running away, uh, we just keep practicing so we can see for ourselves what, what he's talking about. I can guarantee you this, you won't, you don't, uh, what's lost when enlightenment happens was never worth holding on to. That's one of the things that you see. So uh, it's a setting down of a burden, it's a setting down of, of something which is heavy, which is painful, which is difficult, and uh, it's a relief. But the approach to awakening can generate uh, experiences of, of fear, of uh, uh, uncertainty, of, of uh, uh, maybe even a feeling like you're facing death because something big has to be given up. Uh, so along with this beauty comes a kind of terror. Right? Uh, it's, it's not necessarily all you know, roses and chocolates from here to Nirvana. Uh, this kind of terror has to do with the existential terror uh, at the heart of everyone who's got a self uh, that they believe in. Right? Part of the reason that we're afraid of death is because we're clinging to this idea of me having to die. If death weren't something that occurred, then of course we wouldn't have any terror of death. But also if there wasn't such a thing as me who dies, death wouldn't be a problem either. So we, 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 we're clinging to this ideal of a self in a very deep, visceral way. Uh, a way that's inaccessible to our intellect. It's emotional. It's intuitive. It's um, even physical. It's like bodily clinging that's happening. And as the Dhamma starts to work its magic, starts to seep into your, your consciousness, um, the view, that's the normal view of, of humanity at large, the experience of being a person inside this fleshy shell and the rest of the world being out there somewhere, kind of out there beyond the, the boundary of me. The separation of experience into me and everything else that is affecting me. That's a distinction that we're making with our minds. And as the Dhamma starts to work its magic, we, we start to see there really isn't this distinction other than as a mental fabrication. So the hardness of my teeth, which belong to me, and the hardness of this clock, which is not me, is the same hardness. Right? That's just a, 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 like a metaphor that what's going on internally and what goes on in the world at large is just arising and passing away. It's all of the same nature. The idea that there's a separate me that stands alone apart from it all also arises and passes away. To see that directly uh, comes about gradually. We don't necessarily see it all at once. But as we start to, to drift, we start to get into that area, then to, into that arena, where we get start catching little glimpses of the truth, uh, we see that our own thoughts arise and pass away our own moods, our mind states, 
our beliefs. Uh, they're, sometimes they're here and sometimes they're not here. Well, the implication is, is that they don't really belong to you. So if your thoughts don't belong to you, what does? Who are you? This person without any thoughts, right? So these kind of questions start to chip away at the, the inner security of being a someone. And when you start to lose that inner security, it can seem like the ground is slipping beneath your feet. It can seem very threatening. And uh, it can generate moods of, of anguish, of fear, of, uh, of doubt, uncertainty, all kinds of um, triggered uh, emotional states can come from this. So I'm, I'm putting that out there because it's, uh, it's something you should be aware of. The, the path is uh, uh, it's got bumps in it. There's, there's obstacles, there's difficulties to overcome. Uh, in the tradition, there's parts of the tradition that actually has a name for this part, this portion of the path. Uh, uh, it's called the Dukkha Jnanas, the knowledges of suffering. It's part of your education, unfortunately. Um, so we have, there's, there's knowledges that we pick up along the way. We start to pick up our own direct knowledge of, of everything that has a nature to arise, has a nature to cease. We get to see it for ourselves, and it becomes our knowledge. Um, but you can't, really, you can't really have that knowledge until you point your mind in the right direction. So you have to actually know a few other things before you get to that point. You have to see how the interaction between experiences of the world, like lifting and placing your feet, and the fact that you're paying attention, how those two things interact. You can't actually experience the breath unless you look. You can't experience your walking unless you look. And so the fact of our ability to direct our attention and the experience of the world, um, at first it doesn't seem very important, but, but it's something you have to see over and over again for it to sink in, that um, our physicality and our mentality are co-arising. They, they're, they're joined together. You can't have one without the other. And it starts off as a kind of a wordless intuition, which acts as the basis for your ability to see the universality of rising and passing away. Uh, but it only, it only arises because you're practicing. So as you practice, you start to get insights into what's going on here. And along the way, you might be a little put off. You might see something which is a little scary because it challenges something really near and dear to your presumptions about how things are. So uh, the Buddha says that uh, he's, there's a, 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 a sutta in which he's talking about devas uh, not wanting to hear it. Like when devas hear about, hear about the characteristic of not-self, uh, they flee. They say, oh, you know, we'll, we'll be annihilated. We'll, 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 we, wish, we shall be no more. We can't. We, we must not hear this, right? Um, so they, they never they won't develop wisdom because they're afraid of what it means. Certain devas are, are cowards, I guess. <clears throat> so uh, it takes a certain amount of, of um, courage to follow the Buddha's path, conviction, uh, faith in what the Buddha is teaching, and that's what that's that's why it's so 
important to pay attention to wholesomeness, to pay attention to goodness, to pay attention to the happiness that this path arouses in your heart, to make note of it and develop confidence in it. Because both logically and intuitively, we can see that a path that produces consistently good results based on uh, wholesome qualities of things like attention, uh, restraint, uh, goodness towards others, goodness towards the world in general, uh, looking very, very carefully at what's actually happening and abandoning what you think is happening. That this can't really mislead you or show you something or make you go insane or make things worse. Uh, and you see that along the way. You have to pay attention to the fact that it produces only good results so that when difficulties come about, you'll have the courage of your conviction, of your own direct experience that, okay, this I know this path only produces good results. The Buddha says it's going to be good. I trust the Buddha. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang in there and keep, keep at it, right? it. It can help you get through these little rough spots that come up along the way. And then you'll see for yourself that it's actually beautiful in the end, too. You've already seen that it's beautiful in the beginning and beautiful in the middle. But the beauty in the end is when you see for yourself uh, this freedom of mind that the Buddha is pointing to. So I'll leave those thoughts for your consideration. Namaste. 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 Namaste.